We're going to continue our study of Matthew's Gospel. And so if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Let's stand in the honor of reading God's Word this morning. Looking at verses 15 through 17 in Matthew chapter 18. I'm speaking about noble confrontation. The series title has been Noble Living in a Needy World. Specifically this morning, we're talking about a noble confrontation. If your brother, verse 15, sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you. So that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, Tell the church, but if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. Father, we realize that this is one of the more difficult passages to apply in all of Scripture. But Lord, you have called us as believers to care about one another enough to not fail to bring accountability into one another's lives. Lord, we are a family. As a family, I pray that we will care deeply about how our sin reflects on the family and most of all, on our Heavenly Father. Help us to respond as Scripture guides us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As I was thinking about this message this week, over and over again, uh, a commercial, I believe, from the the late 1980s, a public service announcement uh, for a drug-free America. This commercial kept coming to my mind, and so this morning I kind of sprung it on our guys back here and said, hey, if we can get that commercial off YouTube and and, and play that, it's only about 30 seconds, I'd love to do that because I, I believe it illustrates the difficulty of this issue of noble confrontation. So if we've got that ready, you guys go ahead and and show that commercial at this time. You remember this? All right, don't just stand there, do something. We say, well, that would be absurd. If they were standing on a railroad track, we would do all that we could to get them off the tracks and save their life. But we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are caught up in things that are destroying their lives, and we fear confronting that. And Scripture calls us to confront that. Sometimes it's our children, and we're like, well, I... You know what? I don't want to rock the apple cart. I don't want to get my kids upset with me. I don't want to turn them against me. So I'm just going to let them continue to do what they're doing. Sometimes it's children saying, you know, I can never really talk to my parents about that. Or a spouse saying, you know, I don't want to push them away. And listen, let's be obvious. There's a couple of extremes when it comes to confrontation. There's one extreme of not confronting and letting them kind of continue on the route that they're going that is going to lead to destruction. 
And the other extreme is confronting it the wrong way, in the wrong spirit, with a mean spirit, with, with a condemning spirit rather than a rescuing spirit. Often being noble isn't easy. Offering a loving confrontation is a classic example. But it's neither noble nor loving to avoid confrontation when confrontation is necessary. And I'm speaking to you as one who honestly admits that I don't like confrontation. I only like confronting people with the Word of God as the Word of God confronts because that's the authority that allows me to say if the confrontation hurts, then the confrontation is with God. Sometimes in life, it's kind of like a a surgeon who's called upon to remove a, a tumor that's in a difficult place. There has to be a sense that this must be confronted, it must be dealt with, and at the same time, that it must be handled with great care. So Jesus gives us the implications in this text as to why and the instructions as to how sin must be confronted. How how we can lovingly confront sin in the life of a believer. And I believe that all of us will be called upon from time to time to apply this text. Let's think about the why for a moment. There is a noble purpose of confrontation. And we must not get away from that noble purpose. This noble purpose and an understanding of the noble purpose of confrontation will help shape the attitude with which we would approach a situation. So we're reminded in this noble purpose that we're speaking of someone who has experienced a past redemption. A past redemption. He says, if your brother, and we might apply this to a Christian sister as well, a brother or sister in Christ, someone who is a believer. In other words, this is a part of the family. I realize that that the majority of these confrontations that we're talking about can take place in the context of the biological family and never get past that. But as the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to remember something, and that is we are a family. We are blood kin, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ that ties us together, and we are to care about one another as family members. And so this is a brother. This is somebody who is part of the family of God because they have experienced forgiveness, and we have experienced forgiveness and redemption through His blood, we're called to live as family and to look out for one another. So our goal in this situation is to apply Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Because we stand forgiven, we're now forgiving one another, we're looking out for one another, we're caring about each other. And then we're reminded, by the way, that we are our brother's keeper. Even though it's become very cliche to say, well, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not responsible for them. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says, if a brother is caught in a sin, it's overtaking them. It's, it's, it's the image of somebody running somebody down. You know, you say, well, I wasn't looking. 
We were talking about the, the title this morning in our life group, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. You might say, I wasn't looking for it. Here's the thing about sin. It's looking for you. <laughs> you know, we were saved when we first came to know Christ from the penalty of sin. That's salvation, justification. We are sanctification, being saved from the power of sin. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin when we are in heaven. But we are still living this life at this moment in the presence of sin. And it is hunting us at every turn. And so it says if somebody is, is caught, captured by sin, and it goes on to say in this context, you know, after it says you who are spiritual, restore this person. We'll talk about restoration in a moment. It says we are to carry one another's burdens. In the context, when Paul was talking to the church at Galatia, in the context of a brother being caught up in sin, it says we're to carry one another's burdens. And so if we have a brother or sister in Christ, if we have somebody in our immediate family or somebody in the family of God who is caught up in sin, we have a responsibility to them as family. So there's a noble purpose because of the past redemption, because we are related to one another. Even the context of this, remember we spoke about uh, kids last week and Jesus transitions in chapter 18 from kids into the parable of the lost sheep. Look back at the, at the previous verses, 12 through 14 in the same chapter. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go search for the stray? And if he finds it, I assure you he rejoices over the sheep more, or, or that sheep, that one sheep, more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. When we see someone on the path to destruction, as a believer, as a family member, we should do all that we can to pull them back because of our past redemption, but also because of a present reflection. We should be concerned about how our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters reflect, first of all, on the Lord Jesus Christ, second of all, how it reflects on the family of God, the church, the people of God. If this is a brother, then it's a member of the body. Remember what Nathan said to David when he had to confront his sin with Bathsheba? Nathan said, here's what you've done, David. You've given the enemy a cause to blaspheme. You've given the enemy a cause to blaspheme. Your sin isn't just hurting you. It didn't just destroy a family, David. It gave the enemy a cause to blaspheme. Your sin reflects on the kingdom. And in the same way, our sin reflects on our family the family of God, the body of Christ, and even Jesus Christ Himself. We allow people to mock you, mock the church, mock our God, all because we fail to apply something like maybe Romans chapter 6, 1 and 2. Why shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how can we that are dead to sin keep on living in it? It goes on to say, as many of us as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, talking about our spiritual baptism, as many of us as we're baptized in Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, that we should walk in newness of life as a believer. Our lives should reflect resurrection power and victory in such a way that we're not reflecting on a, a defeated, sinful life when we reflect the body of Christ and the head of the body, Christ Himself. As Ephesians talks about body life, it tells believers, be imitators of Christ. 
We're reflecting His glory in the world. I realize that none of us are perfect. Now, positionally we are. Through the blood of Christ, practically, we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. And and I know that's a process. I want to be more like Jesus tomorrow than I am today. And I hope that I'm more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. We're in process. And when that process gets reversed, we need somebody to get us back on track and back in the right direction. We need accountability in our lives because we are a brother's keeper. So there's a present reflection. We need not only to care about our own lives so much that we don't want to reflect in a sinful way on the body of Christ and on the Christ, the head of the body, but we don't want our brothers and sisters to reflect that way. And then there's the potential for restoration. Potential restoration. This is part of that noble purpose for confrontation because he says if he listens to you, look back at verse 15, if he listens, you've won your brother. If you approach a brother or sister who's caught up in sin and they listen to you, then you're going to say right away, man, that was worth dealing with. I'm glad I talked to my kids about that. I'm glad I talked to my spouse about this. I've won a brother. I've won a spouse. I've won a friend. I've helped bring them off the path of destruction. The word won there has to do with being rescued. It's used in some places to be saved. Paul said... Again and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that, that he became all things for all people, that by all means he might win some. He wanted to win people to Christ. So when you see where it's going, when you see the path someone's taking, you realize we've got to go to them. We've got to bring reconciliation. That reconciliation may be simply their reconciliation to God, helping them to make things right with God. And we know of so many folks that are out there that think one day when I get everything all together, then I'm going to come to God and I'm going to come and be a part of the church family. That's what the church family's for. The church family's here so that we can lock arms together and help one another in our walk with God. And so we need to go. Hebrews says not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But it goes on to say we're together so that we might spur one another. I like that language. Spur one another toward love and good works. Sometimes we need a swift kick in the rear. Amen? Sometimes we need a brother or sister who loves us enough to approach us and tell us what we don't want to hear. There needs to be reconciliation with God. Often there needs to be reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because as a body, we are reflecting on the kingdom. And so we need to go and say, you know what? We've we got to pull this together. We've got to love one another. We've got to work through this thing. Because we're reflecting on the kingdom of God. And that's a noble purpose. One of my favorite movies because of all the, the leadership principles that it teaches. And I, and I pull little uh, snippets from it from time to time. It is, is the movie, Remember the Titans. True story of how a, a football team had to be integrated, and it was during a time, I believe late 60s or early 70s, when there was a lot of uh, uh, racial tension there in Virginia. And when these players came together, they were going through all kinds of issues. They couldn't be reconciled with each other for anything. And, and one night at football camp, 
Gettysburg College, the coach gets them and, and, and they go for a run. They go running through the woods and end up at the, uh, the battlegrounds where the Battle of Gettysburg was fought. And I don't want to get it wrong, so I want to read Coach Boone's speech word for word. Some of you will remember this because you've seen the movie. But it says, and this, this is Coach Boone talking. When, when they get there, and by the way, they're out of breath. This was 3 o'clock in the morning that he got them up. Some of these guys that have been to football camp knows running's just part of it. But he gets them up at 3 o'clock in the morning to run. And, and when they arrive at the, the battleground, here's what Coach Boone says. He says, anybody know what this place is? This is Gettysburg. This is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field. Fighting the same fight that we're still fighting amongst ourselves today. This green field right here was painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys. Smoke and hot lead pouring through their bodies. Listen to their souls, men. I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. You listen, you take a lesson from the dead. If we don't come together right now, then we too will be destroyed, just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, but you will respect each other. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll learn to play this game like men. Now listen, if it was so important for the game of football, for them to come together at a place where blood was shed to be reminded that, that a battle had been fought and, and that they needed to come together. How much more important is it for the body of Christ to realize that Jesus Christ went to the cross and shed His blood that we might be reconciled to God and because we can be reconciled to God, we can be reconciled to each other. How important is it for us to help pull people back in right relationship with God and with one another? Sometimes we have to do the noble thing of confrontation. But let's keep in, in mind, there is a process. There, there's not only a noble purpose, there is a noble process for confrontation. In other words, you have to do this the right way. You have to do this in the right spirit. And, and it begins with evaluation. You, you need to evaluate some things. You know, what, what are some things that we need to evaluate? Well, there's the assumption... Jesus has already taught, we've already seen it in Matthew, that we need to begin with some self-evaluation. Remember the passage in Matthew chapter 7? As Jesus said, listen, judge in the same way you expect to be judged, but before you go and you pull the sawdust out of your neighbor's eye, your brother's eye, be sure to get your log out of your own eye to begin with. And so don't be guilty of hypocritical confrontation. Don't say, you know what, hey, listen, I know there's about 10% of us that just were kind of born with the nature of, man, I like to confront something. And most of us are non-confrontational, but, but every now and then some of us, man, we just, we just like to butt heads with somebody. Where's the fight? I want in it. But all of us as Christians have to be very careful that, that we're not just so quick to look for something in somebody else's life that we don't evaluate the sin in our own life. So Galatians 6, 1, the passage I referred to a moment ago, says, you who are spiritual. You who are spiritual. What does it mean to be spiritual? Because that's such a, a vague, and it's a, such a generalized word in our world today. Well, in Galatians, by the way, you realize that the letters didn't have chapter 
numbers and verse numbers when they were written, written just like letters. Galatians 6 naturally followed Galatians 5, which talks about life in the Spirit. And it says that the fruit of the Spirit, and I believe this is what it means to be spiritual, the fruit of the Spirit, which is the evidence of the Spirit-filled life, is love, joy, peace, patience. <laughs> in other words, when you evaluate the situation, are you confronting it with love, with joy, with peace, with patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness? Are we approaching it that way? So we need to get the log out of our own eye. We need to evaluate where we are. Much confrontation is done in the wrong spirit, and it's just as harmful, if not more so, to confront sin with the wrong spirit than to not confront it at all. And then we need to evaluate the seriousness of the sin. We need to stop and think about it, especially if we're kind of quick to want to judge, if we're kind of quick to say, you know what, that's wrong and that needs to stop, that is unjust, and I'm going to do something about it. Let's be careful. Let's evaluate the seriousness of the sin. Why? Why do you say, why do we need to evaluate that? All sin is a big deal. That's true, but Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory, listen to this, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Let me read that again. A person's wisdom yields patience. (laughs) It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. You know what I think Proverbs is saying there? saying don't sweat the small stuff. Don't feel like you have to be the spiritual police and hound people for everything. It's to your glory to overlook an offense from time to time. Your brother offends you. Maybe somebody forgot to pay you. And God tells you, you know what? You can live without that. You can live without that. As a matter of fact, if you'll just let it go, I'll take care of you. Just just let it go and, and I'll take care of you. Maybe... Somebody hurt your feelings in a heated moment. You got your feelings hurt in a heated moment. Let it go. Maybe someone was unfair to you in a particular situation. You can't let it go. It's just unfair. Let it go. Maybe they used wrong judgment. You know it's not always the case, but they used wrong judgment. And he says wisdom, someone who is mature can just kind of let that go. Man, if you want to see, and I know you've heard me say this time and time again, but let's go ahead and get it out there before uh, Little League Baseball season gets started. If you want to see immaturity in Madison County, if you want to see immaturity to its peak in Madison County, go over to the Recreation Department during Little League, Minor League Baseball season and, and watch people yell at teenage umpires for making a bad call. Watch Christian men and women lose their joy because an umpire who is underpaid, and by the way, Jason or Jeff didn't ask me to say this. <laughs> I'll never forget the Mike Stonecipher who was serving as chairman of Deacons at the time and, and, and I were, were, were the coaches on a team and it just so happened a particular game against the, the other top team. Jason and Jeff were our umpires. And the other coach just said, I give up. You got your pastor, chairman of deacons, and, 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 and your summer intern at the time, and, and your keyboardist all. And yeah, we, we done lost. 
No, we had a fun game. But there are times where somebody makes a bad call in life, in your workplace, at your school. The teacher just gets it wrong, kids. Teachers aren't perfect, right? Neither are pastors. Somebody gets it wrong. They kind of blow the call. They make a bad judgment in a situation. And it's not a character issue. And you know what you need to do? Let it go. Just let it go. Just just overlook it and, and move on. Maybe it's a rare sin. It shocks you because they never let it happen. And it doesn't continue. So you let it go. Or maybe it's a long time past. You're holding on to something that somebody sinned against you 10, 20, 30 years ago. Doesn't even cross their mind anymore. But you can't let it go. Remember that acrostic Fido? (laughs) Forget it and drive home. Some of those things we need to forget about. Just need to let it go. Overlook it. Love covers a multitude of sin. Pastor Stephen Cole, pastor in the Southwest, has done a Bible study on the, the sins that the Bible warns us to confront. He says, if you, as you're evaluating sin and whether or not it needs to be confronted, then here's a list that the Bible makes it very clear. We need to confront this sin. Sexual immorality is a sin that has to be confronted. If your spouse, if your children are involved in sexual immorality, that needs to be lovingly confronted because it is so destructive in their lives. The Bible lists gossip. Gossip is a sin that needs to be confronted. Slander. Anger. Divisiveness in the church. False teaching. Paul says, if anybody is preaching a gospel other than this one, let them be accursed. And we have all over America today people that are preaching gospels other than this, which are no gospel at all. And when they stray from the Word of God and the God of the Word, that's to be confronted and be confronted publicly. Disorderly conduct and drunkenness. And men who refuse to work are sins that the Bible says have to be confronted. So in those situations, we realize that there's a serious matter. So we need to evaluate. Is this something that we need to even deal with or not? Is this a big deal? Have I dealt with a sin in my own life? Is my spirit like it should be? Am I, am I spirit-filled? Am I modeling the things of God? Have I gotten the log out of my eye? Secondly, we need to engage. We need to engage, and our engagement needs to be private conversation to start with. Look at what Jesus says. Rebuke him in private. I believe, and we're seeing this context of discussions about children and the home. In chapter 19, next week we're going to get into marriage. I believe that confrontation works best when it's a family member who can deal with it. Sometimes they need help. But when a family member can go to them, sometimes a third party is needed. A mature brother or sister in Christ to come and be a part of that. Pastors and church leaders can sometimes be mediators to help you out in a moment of confrontation and just say, listen, 
I don't know what this is going to be like. Can we just meet down at the church and you just be the fly on the wall and, and help us mediate this process? When he gets outside of the family, Titus 2 gives us some instructions about especially older and the younger. And I believe when it gets outside of the family, whenever possible, it needs to be older women talking to younger women about indiscretions, older men talking to younger men about indiscretions in their own life. So if there's a a direct offense by the opposite sex and there needs to be some kind of mediation there, we need older men working with younger men, older women working with younger women in those situations. We need to keep it as private as possible. And so he says, go in private, keep it as private as possible. By the way, that's not, if you've got sin in your own life, well, I want to keep that sin as private as possible. (laughs) We need to confess our sins, James says, to one another. So we need to go to a brother or sister in Christ, if they don't know of our sin, and and, and find healing and forgiveness for our sins. But, But if you know about a sin in somebody's life, everybody else doesn't know about it. You don't have to get on Facebook How do we do? Get on Facebook and say, I'm not going to call any names, but everybody knows who I'm talking about. By the way, Facebook's a great tool for witnessing, complaining about politics or whatever, but it's not a place to confront brothers and sisters in Christ for their sin. It's not a place for that. Social media is no place for this kind of confrontation. It's to be kept as private as possible. When you're sharing that kind of junk in, in social media, You might be exposing somebody else's immorality, somebody else's adultery, but you're exposing your own gossip and your own problem with gossip. So be careful. Try to make it as private as possible. I've seen people use situations for emotional manipulation. I remember when I was uh, maybe a college student, maybe in my, my older teens, and Trinity and several other churches used to do a trip down to Panama City Beach, Florida, and we had some powerful services and all that, but I remember on one particular occasion, I'm sitting there going, this is not of God. And kids begin to get up and share and point out everybody else's sin in front of everybody, not just, hey, I've got this problem. One young lady in particular stood up and called boys out in her youth group in front of everybody. We didn't know if it was true or not. Most of the the, the folks from Trinity were just going, what? (laughs) We weren't ready for that one. And for some reason, it was just allowed to continue there, and there was emotional manipulation that was going on in the process when an older lady needed to take this young lady to the side and say, obviously, you got some issues. We need to talk about this. But often, in churches all across America, instead of bringing healing, they bring exploitation. So if you can deal with it in private, let's get it done in private and let love cover that multitude of sins. But if that doesn't work, if... You say, well, you know what, I've gone to them, I've talked to them about it, I'm I'm not getting anywhere. If it doesn't work, then we enlist. Then we enlist. He says, if he won't listen, take one or two with you. (laughs) He doesn't say, go get a lynch mob. He says, take one or two with you. Spiritually mature brothers and sisters in Christ, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, Every fact may be established. Who said what can be established? Somebody is there mediating this process. So you're enlisting help. 
Maybe you need to go to some, some of the leadership of the church. A, a mature Christian that you know is spirit-filled and walking with God. And then he goes in verses 16 and 17, he, he kind of builds on that, or in verse 17, he says, if he pays no attention to them, then you go to the church. And again, that's probably starting with the church leadership because, let's just be honest, everybody in the crowd is not the church. And so if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, I am so glad that you're here. If you're, if you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, I am so glad you're here. But you're not part of the church. And so as the church, we have to be careful not to broadcast everything for everybody when, when we need to be handling things with certain levels of maturity. He doesn't say go to the biggest crisis, go to the church. The church has a system, the church has a protocol. We involve the church in the process, and it says, listen, if, if they won't listen at this point, maybe they've sit down and talked with a pastor, maybe, maybe some uh, life group leaders, some, some children's workers, some youth workers, some deacons were involved in the process, and they still refuse to listen. It says, treat them like an unbeliever and like a tax collector. Now, I want you to keep something in mind. When Jesus said, treat them like an unbeliever or a tax collector, how did Jesus treat unbelievers and tax collectors. <laughs> How did he treat unbelievers and tax collectors? He loved them. So we don't quit loving them. We don't say you're not welcome here. We, you're not going to be able to continue in willful disobedience, walking in sin, and serve on a ministry team, be in a place of leadership. We're not going to set you up for failure because you're not living the life God's called you to live. But we pray that you'll stay under the sound of the gospel and the sound of the Word of God because our desire is to bring you back to where you should be in your walk with God. But nevertheless, there's got to be consequences. There's got to be tough love. There's got to be ramifications. There's got to be times that we say, you know what? You can't serve in the body of Christ right now. Not until you make things right. That's tough. It's tough to have to Practice this noble confrontation. When we see it coming, we almost dread it. I, I remember my friend and dorm mate in, in seminary, his name was Wyatt, and he had a nice car, and he, and he wrecked his car, totaled it out because somebody had pulled out in front of him. And when he came back to the dorm, we were talking about this, and, and, and I said, man, what were you thinking when they pulled out in front of you? I never forgot his remarks. He said, oh, when they pulled out in front of me, I was thinking, this is going to hurt <laughs> Like that. I said, yeah, that's probably what I'd have been thinking too. Probably what I'd have been thinking too. And sometimes confrontation is inevitable. And, and we can see it coming and we're, we're just kind of squinting going, this, this is going to be bad. This is going to hurt. We need to give it to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God. Understanding that there is a noble purpose for confrontation and not only is there a noble purpose, there's a noble process. We can do this God's way. Going back to the Galatians passage in chapter 6, and I'll close. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And the word restore in Galatians is the same word that they would have used for a physician who would set a bone that was broken. The bone has to be set the bone has to be restored 
But there's a certain tenderness and a certain care that has to be displayed in the process. And if we've got a brother or sister, maybe it's in your family, maybe there's parents here that are brokenhearted over the actions of your children or your grandchildren. Maybe there's someone here that's brokenhearted over the actions of their spouse and there's continual, willful disobedience in their life. That means we've got to evaluate where we are, the seriousness of their sin. We've got to engage in a conversation, privately if possible, then involving others if necessary, in a spirit of love, being kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. What shall we say, Romans 6 says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Grace is not a license to sin. Grace liberates us so that we don't have to. The righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. May we learn to walk in the Spirit, both in overcoming sin in our life, and rescuing our brothers and sisters in Christ who are overtaken in sin. Bow your head with me this morning.